Hey guys, welcome to the Macros Bodybuilding and Powerlifting Podcast. I'm here with Mike Israel for another long-awaited Q&A. And we're excited because this is being filmed just before Christmas. So this is the last filming of a podcast I will be doing. This will probably be released after Christmas, probably around New Year. Uh, and so we're wrapping up 2017. Mike's just finishing the semester. So uh, he said he's in a demolishing mood. And that means we're getting some questions answered and final answer kind of this is going to give you the lowdown so uh i have a great question that came through in an email which we're going to start with so this email came from uh Isaba, i'm going to say it completely wrong from spain uh so um an in a great name and uh, the first question and i have actually written an article relating to this topic in terms of they asked about they've just finished a long cutting phase and now they're going into massing and noticing their MRV or the amount they can actually do in the gym and recover from has massively increased. And is that typical as you eat more? Does your MRV increase? Um, do you want to delve into that, Mike? How far can we take this? Do you just continually see an increase in the amount you can do and recover from if you just keep on eating more? Um, where does it cut off? So they're saying that their MRV has increased from the end of their cutting phase to as they keep massing, their MRV keeps going up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there are a couple of factors that um, cause that very reliably seen effect, so they're not alone in that. Um, and there are a couple of different reasons why that happens. An interesting reason is that the hypocaloric conditions and the usually extra cardio and sometimes higher repetition training of the cutting period actually converts your fiber types a little bit to behave more like slow twitch fibers, which are known to be more fatigue resistant and are known to have higher maximum recoverable volumes. And that's not in itself a really great thing because even though they can do more work, they don't hypertrophy as much. <laughs> and it's that definitely doesn't make up for their increased work capacity. So that's kind of an artifact of why you might see really high work capacities after. But again, as you get bigger, as you mass, as you start working back into maybe lower rep ranges, you pull away from cardio a bit. As you grow more muscle, that effect is going to get tapered off. So that's kind of temporary. However, another non, uh, you know, another very noticeable effect is that after cutting, at the end of a cutting phase, your fatigue is usually very high. And when your fatigue is very high, it's already very high to begin with. And, you know, we have a certain amount of training we can recover from up to the most, the MRV. But if you have a whole bunch of that already as fatigue, there's only so much training you can do until you start to get into really serious problems with recovery if you're already holding a lot of fatigue. So after cutting, when you're holding a ton of fatigue, yeah, your MRV is going to be not super impressive. As that fatigue falls off, when you start eating food again, your training isn't as crazy again, and you get more rest and all the beautiful things of eating back to a eucaloric or hypercaloric diet, your fatigue is going to start to fall and the room opened up within your training capacity, within your recovery capacity, starts to grow back up to normal levels. So your MRV is kind of illusorily lower after cutting is because you're carrying a ton of fatigue. And as that fatigue drops off, you're opened up your body's recovery abilities are no longer just fighting that fatigue. They can now be used to fight the new fatigue generated by your training. So as you're training, 
you can train more and more and more because your body's more freed up as your fatigue from cutting falls. So that's definitely a big reason. And of course, on top of just returning to normal, more food does in fact bring with it more recovery ability. You're literally fueling the system to be able to recover more. So, and, and as we you know uh, have noted several times, the number one factor to determine your individual MRV after genetics, right? As soon as you have your own max recoverable volume, whatever that is for whatever conditions, the number one factor that determines that after that, that modifies it is how much sleep you get. Because if you don't sleep, you mean you're done with everything. It's the most important thing about recovery. It's probably one of its main evolutionary purposes is total system recovery, in fact. Um, but after that, it's food. And the most important thing about food is calories. You know, people, this is kind of tends to be a common, maybe not mistake, but a, uh, an error in focus with a lot of nutritionists that work with athletes. As they look at an athlete, they'll see them eating a bunch of junk food and they'll say, this isn't performance food. And they'll switch them to a really healthy diet. And sometimes the athletes comply quite considerably because, you know, they themselves know, okay, you know, I'm not going to win the world championship eating McDonald's. Um, and they switch and, you know, what is the, one of the most common artifacts or side effects of switching to healthier food, your calories drop off like crazy. Then the athletes start experiencing recovery problems because they're training at high volume loads. They're eating maybe two thirds of the calories they used to, and they can't recover anymore. And then they will learn from that experience that they need fast food, which is of course not true. They could have done that same thing with better food and had the best of all benefits, but switching to you know clean foods or whatever, healthy foods, carries that weight with it. And, and uh, what they're learning through that example is the massive power of food, of hypercaloric eating on recovery. But as you uh, have pointed out, and you made that awesome uh, little infographic uh, about a week ago, is that the, the, the once, you know, if you are hypocaloric, and significantly so, your MRV is going to be total crap, really low. As you eat more and more food to close the gap to become less and less hypocaloric, your MRV jumps by leaps and bounds. As soon as you're eucaloric, if you increase food more and more after that, your MRV starts to kind of top out. I mean, there's only so much food your body can process. And once you're eating enough food to meet all of your body's recovery needs, and the rest is just being deposited as fat or burned off for extra energy, you no longer get a whole lot out of that. Um, in very extreme cases, and this is incredibly rare, the burden of stress of having to eat that much food and digest it actually reduces your MRV by a tiny amount. You know, imagine how much, you know, if you had to eat 8,000 calories a day, you're not exactly going to be able to train as hard as you used to because you're vomiting half the time. And also, you know, what you used to consider a relaxing night in front of the telly where you're eating delicious foods to recover from the next day is now a night of misery and horror as you try to cram in that last little bit of brown rice or whatever. So, so it turns out that, yes, eating more on a mass is absolutely the number two best way to improve your MRV versus getting enough sleep. And funny enough, that's another point on cutting. One of the most predictable effects of long-term cutting towards the tail end is that your sleep is going to start to suffer. It's going to start to suffer in quality and in quantity. You know, we've all had those times on a cut where you wake up at like 6 a.m. and you're like, what the hell's going on? And you don't, you're not going back to sleep. You fell asleep at 1 a.m. the night before because you're hungry. And you're like, okay, mm -hmm. this is a self-extinguishing process. But um, yeah, so so sleep quality improves. You know, mass sleep is good sleep. You know, after that first cheat meal, after a bodybuilding show, you sleep for like 13 hours. You wake up, you're like, ah, ah, you can't speak. You got drool all over the place. But you feel amazing, right? So not only does 
massing improve how much food is coming in. It also can improve sleep to some extent. So those two factors combined, boy, that does raise your MRV. And that's how come you can do more, more, more recovery fuel for the system, better sleep, better everything. And that's how you come you can train more, which is one of the situations why, you know, a, a while ago, I came out with the idea that you should still train a lot while cutting. And people said, well, there's no way you can increase your volume on a cut. Uh, you know, massing is supposed to be uh, the num the highest volume, and it absolutely is. When you're massing, you should be training the, the most volume you can simply because your MRV is going to be higher because you have those resources to recover with. What I was saying is that after a maintenance phase, your volume should go up during a cut from a maintenance phase, which is you should always start a serious cut after maintenance phase, right after mass. I kind of forgot people didn't do maintenance phases. So, so a lot of those comments caught me from the left flank. I was like, wait, mm -hmm. what do you mean? Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. And of course mass should have more. And they're like, well, there's just two phases, mass and cut. And I'm like, Ooh, that's actually not true. So um, yeah, absolutely. Massing absolutely has a higher MRV for those reasons. It's not an illusion. It's not some kind of weird artifact and you should uh, take absolute uh, advantage of that, which is one of the reasons why, it's a little confusing why some people are huge advocates of taking breaks right after bodybuilding shows. They'll say, you know, right after I do my show, I basically do active rest for like a month. Then I start to pick up the intensity again. Man, when I'm eating after a show, and I'm sure you've experienced this, or after a hard cut, you think like the week before your show, you basically can't move. You're just a giant mess. Three or four days of high volume eating after the show, and you're like, let's lift weights. Like, I want to do shit. And you have a ton of energy. So, a lot of that is nutritionally mediated. So, you can have some productive training after your show if you choose to structure your mesocycle that way. You don't necessarily have to say, well, you know, I'm so fatigued. Uh, it's not going to work. A lot of that fatigue drops off as soon as you start eating again within a couple of days, especially if you get good sleep, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to hear about. Kind of, definitely when I do mini cuts like as soon as I come out of that like I feel and I start eating more I'm like wow I feel amazing because you don't even feel that bad during a mini cut mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. a bodybuilding show it's probably maybe a week you need kind of I think mentally and physically a bit of a break mm -hmm. and then after that you are like I, I felt pretty good and raring to go I didn't kind of do an excessive reverse diet after my show so yeah I definitely think people can take that benefit and I think it's interesting you talked obviously i had that graph in terms of like you get diminishing returns after you eat start eating too much it starts taking mm -hmm. away from things um i guess the same would be for sleep there's a certain good like amount to have like you get more and more it's better and better but then if you get totally too much it will start dipping off absolutely and one thing people um sometimes miss about getting too much sleep is that yes in and of itself it might have some negatives but too much sleep is a missed opportunity to eat um if you can't sleep 12 hours a night and gain weight <laughs> uh, as, as funny as that sounds and not if you're already big and struggling to gain you need more waking time to eat <laughs> uh, so a lot of times people will say oh, man I slept in a ton and I just started my day at 12 p.m. and then you're like okay well you missed like two meals already like that's tough to make up so uh, yeah definitely too much sleep isn't great but up to enough sleep is good too much food isn't great, but a good, decent hypercaloric amount is great. If people are looking for calorie values, depending on your body size, anything between about 250 extra calories to 1,000 extra calories a day is beneficial. Anything over about 1,000 extra calories a day, probably no net benefit to recovery, um, certainly not on a consistent basis. Mm -hmm. And that lower amounts for those smaller individuals who want to gain a smaller percentage, well, not a smaller percentage of their body weight, that percentage of their body weight is smaller yeah. and larger guys like yourself 
you're probably in that like a thousand calorie zone. Totally. Yeah. Cause if I eat a thousand calories extra per day, you know, that's like, we you know about, Oh, I don't know, two pounds or something like that of tissue a week, give and take. Um, I usually don't gain that fast. So I'm usually at 500 extra calories per day, but you know, my maintenance with all the other training that I do, uh, and I do a lot of cardio and I'm, I walk to work and back, my maintenance is like 4,000, 4,500 calories. Um, so my, 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 my 500, uh, you know, plus to that is 5,000 calories. That's, that takes a, that's a lot of food. You don't just yeah. kind of like, uh, you know, uh, you know, piddle paddle around and eat 5,000 calories. So it's definitely something, but you know, anything past that starts to be, uh, no help with recovery mm-hmm. per se. You know, I did that 10,000 calorie challenge oh, yeah. uh, recently, which, you know, was interesting. I, I, um, I actually was on antibiotics at the time and I didn't realize this, but not all antibiotics do this to me, but that one in particular uh, radically reduces my appetite. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, and I didn't know that at the time. So I was like, this is way harder than I thought it would be. This is stupid and I hate it. And I didn't <laughs> even want to eat food. Um, so I feel like not, you know, not drug impaired, I would be able to eat 10,000 calories more easily. But for the record, I'm never, ever fucking going to do that again. It was terrible. It wasn't fun. Mm-hmm. I didn't like anything about it. But I will say, if you're having like food issues where you're like after a cut and you're like super hungry and you always want to eat, eat 10,000 calories in one day, mm-hmm. you'll get over your food issues really fucking quickly. I didn't want to eat food for two weeks after. No joke. Like people are like, you want to go out and get pizza and stuff? And I was like, really? <laughs> we'll just eat my clean food. No joke, man. That shit. It put me out for at least a couple of days after, like two days after, I had, I think, 2,000 calories in that day. And even that was a struggle. I had to drink protein shakes to get in enough protein. I like would look at a whey protein shake. It, it like looked like it tasted way too sweet. And I would drink it. It was like, Argh. I was like hyperglycemic because it was awful. Fuck 10,000 calories. I hate it. Never again. People who do like 20,000 calorie challenges or whatever. Nuts. I mean, it, it, one caveat, if you're like the day after or the week after a bodybuilding show, you can do that stuff and actually enjoy it because your brain's all messed up and leptin and ghrelin have run away it's like entirely. But like if you're doing it, like I did it in the middle of a mass phase. I was already like food was cool, but I wasn't super excited about it. Mm-hmm. And I was like 10,000 and halfway through I was like, this is stupid. I don't even know if I'm ever going to eat pumpkin. This is crazy. Pumpkin pie is one of my favorite foods. I have no intention of ever eating pumpkin pie in the foreseeable future because I had like four pieces of pumpkin pie to make up some of that. And by the end, I was just like, ah, no. Uh, and I was like, this, I ruined pumpkin pie. Good job, Mike. You ruined your life. I guess it's a good example of how good the body is at keeping homeostasis in terms of like regulating the ho- hunger wow. hormones and stuff. It's yeah, insane. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just want to touch on something because I know people have asked this before and I know we've kind of touched on it before in terms of kind of that surplus to some people that will sound quite assertive in terms of kind of you looking to gain almost like two pounds in a week, which is must be an inch of your total body weight. Um, what is kind of your main reasonings behind kind of, is that too fast? I know some people look to gain maybe a percent a month, which is a, a quite vastly stirred, you know, it's a fourth of the rate. Mm. There's a lot of, there's a considerable lack of clarity around this issue. And um, I actually just saw most, unfortunately, didn't have time to get to all of most of your um, interview with Brad Schoenfeld, which is usually great on your part and excellent uh, on his part. You know, oh, so, thank you. Yeah, you bet. And um, it's so funny how uh, Brad and I have so many very similar ideas uh, from having come from similar paths. I'm like, well, like we arrived at the deload 
accumulation to deload paradigm of four to six weeks, like mm -hmm. in, entirely independently, because I've never read anything by him saying how long that should be. And that was exactly what no. I had come up with. Uh, but, um, you know, one thing he points out is that there's a lot of places where logical inference from the data has to be what you use as opposed to direct data because there's no direct yeah. data on something. So there is no direct data on how fast you should gain. I mean, nothing reliable. And, and any of it that it does exist is on pure beginners. There's a ton of problems with that. Um, my, my views on gaining are the following. I think that anything faster than uh, a percent of your body weight per week um, is, is downright stupid and even with the best pharma is ridiculous and you're just going to get super, super fat up to about half a percent of your body weight per week. So, which for me is, you know, just over a pound per week, uh, under half a kilo, I think is quite reasonable. Anything, you know, up to about half a percent, uh, per week, um, or sorry, a, a quarter of a percent per week uh, of body weight, um, is reasonable still and just erring on the side of a little slower Anything below a quarter of a percent, it starts to get into some tracking problems where people will say that you could use weekly weight averages. You can, but you could be making a mistake for three weeks and the averages don't tell you shit. Uh, and you just pissed away three weeks of massing. You weren't actually massing. You were maintaining. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what you think you were doing. Um, and the other one is I'm not so clear that the overload principle in some sense doesn't apply to nutrition as well as to training. And here's what I mean by that. I think that uh, you have to push your body out of comfort zones nutritionally. There will get to be a point where you gaining very slowly or attempting to gain very slowly is going to result in just metabolic upregulation and not a whole lot of anything else. Uh, really, we've seen really high elevations of NEAT. You know, people just start moving around more, sweating more, fidgeting more, and it just nothing happens. I think sometimes you have to smash it in a little bit to get bigger. Um, one thing I do know almost for certain is that almost, almost, not all, almost everyone who's really, really big has had periods where they've gone a little bit faster and more aggressively than like, you know, a tenth of a pound or whatever, or 1% of body weight, you know, per month. I think that's still a fine figure. Anything much lower than that, it starts to be difficult to track, and I'm not so convinced that it's the best way to go. There, there are a couple of other things. Gaining muscle is hard. Your body eventually becomes very homeostatically resistant to new muscle additions. Mm -hmm. Losing fat is relatively easy as long as you don't go overboard and become obese. So if you gain you know, um, three kilos of total tissue and half a kilo of that or something like that is, let's say you gain four kilos of total tissue and one kilo of that is uh, going to be muscle. You, you lose the three kilos of fat and then no problem. If you gain eight total kilos and two of those, or maybe one and a half of those are muscle and the rest is fat, that might actually be better because that's muscle you may not have gained at all mm -hmm. had you stuck to the much more incremental gains. It is a nuisance, nuisance thing that many of the individuals that espouse this really slow gaining seem to themselves be, and with their cohorts, just not very, not very big individuals. Um, and, and, and this applies to people across the community of pharmacology and not. There are bodybuilders in the pharmacological community, right? And drug test, drug using bodybuilders who are notorious for saying, keep it really slow. And they're also guys that continue to argue every year that mass is being too prioritized, that slimmer, more appealing physiques are better. And they still weigh 190 or 200 pounds instead of like 260 or 280. 
you know, man, if gaining that slow was really cool and really worked to optimize size, maybe you'd see bigger people advocating it. Um, it it's like it's almost like seeing um, seeing individuals that you know advocate staying away from heavy training as a good way to get really big. Well, there's just not a lot of people that did that that are big that didn't train super heavy. And there's an empirical observation to be made there. Uh, and it's not really an ad hominem attack. It's just a very inconvenient reality. So uh, I think that, um, you know, taking all those things in, in together, especially that kind of disruption of homeostasis that you want with kind of force feeding, I think sometimes the periods of that are necessary. Um, so... Uh, you know, kind of all that taken together. I think if you're getting good results from slower gains, I think that's totally cool. If you are getting into the situation where you're trying to gain slower and it's really kind of not working and your body weight stopped moving, um, it might be time to try to gain a little bit faster, especially if you don't like to spend time in this kind of, you know, uh, equivocal area of am I gaining weight or not? Um, mm -hmm. And I also think because body fat is relatively easy to lose, trying to stay as lean as possible while gaining is a fool's errand. And people do that all the time. You know, people will say, you know, some of the, the guys in the industry that will say, you know, don't gain any faster than, you know, a percent per month. Some people go, wow, well, I'll just gain half a percent per month because I'll just gain pure muscle. You end up gaining not a whole lot of anything. You're just, just intentionally yeah. short-circuiting yourself. And, and then what? Mm -hmm. It's a problem. I do see... I experienced many of those issues myself that uh, trying to attempt to gain at the limiting rate of muscle seems to be, yeah, like you said, it was a fool's errand and I ended up having months at which I wouldn't be doing anything and almost like, and especially now I've realized the importance of periodizing kind of high volume periods with lower volume periods. I'd be doing, using all my high volume and it wasn't as high as it could be because I wasn't eating as much as maybe would have helped mm -hmm. bring my MRV even higher. And then I'd kind of use all of that high volume up maintaining and then i'd have to go through well i try and well i wouldn't even have the lower volume phases at this stage so it would just kind of be a continual battle and i'd just be end up staying the same whereas once i periodized my nutrition and training together and i really like forced not force fed but was more assertive i definitely i saw progress much better in the yeah. gym outside the gym and it was noticeable and then when i cut the fat off and like you said maintain muscle pretty easily and you can cut fat really really efic efficiently then the result and fast yeah and fast so yeah i've got mm. to agree i found being more assertive and not trying to gain kind of a really snail's pace and kind of getting over myself in terms of being lean really helped progress me further so yeah uh, sure. and i don't think many people have heard about your comments on the fact that we know about a kind of overload in training volumes and there isn't much data on maybe the fact we need an overload in terms of nutrition. Yeah, maybe. Um, another thing is that you know, it's a very good point you bring up. When properly periodized training, you're, the, the amount of time you can really smash high volumes to produce a good stimulus for hypertrophy uh, is, is measured in several months, maybe three, maybe four. And then you've got to go to low volumes to resensitize everything. Uh, there are people out there that say, you know, your mass phase should be six or eight or nine months long. Man, you, that's physically impossible because you're going to have to take a maintenance phase during that time at some point. And then you, when you take a maintenance phase, you're going to have to not mass unless you just want to gain pure body fat. And that automatically refutes that idea. So I think, uh, you know, these super long cycles 
of massing and other individuals have ideas you know, you got to cut. I've seen show preps, like eight month show prep. That's nonsense. That's insane. I don't know what's called, what that's called anymore, what we're calling a show prep. Maybe there's lots of up and down uh, that I don't know. That's just regular training. But uh, I think a lot of people are, are in that idea that you got to do everything as slow and as long as possible. Certainly you can't rush the process, but I think there's a middle ground there that takes periodization to account and kind of allows you to get the least worst of both worlds, so mm-hmm. to speak. I guess in, in if I was going to put it to an analogy that I think people might be able to relate to, it's kind of like changing lanes to get somewhere quicker rather than trying to stay in the same lane and potentially like getting behind traffic and just being really slow and maybe not progressing as well as if you change lanes and then saw better progress, you kind of went up the path more effectively. That's a very good analogy. Absolutely. Cool. Um, so yeah, we'll get on to the second question that they had, which was, and we've spoken about junk volume before, and I just wanted to really kind of demolish it, get this kind of definition out of the way and also give people kind of how they can hear and ask, how do you transform this drunk junk volume or how do you get rid of it and just focus on productive volume? Kind of establish what is junk volume for the listeners? Mm-hmm. So it's a term that's, you know, my, uh, my uh, colleague and roommate, Dr. James Hoffman, likes to use this term a lot. And he uses it a lot in the strength and conditioning classes. We have to start this uh, discussion from just a, a, a premise of just kind of rational basis and thought. You could say philosophy, but it's really the, doing the term injustice. So when you are in the gym, You are not in the gym just to train. You are not in the gym to move around. You are not in the gym, no matter what anyone tells you, to film Instagram videos of you doing stuff. Your job is to stimulate a very complex but rule-based machine of hypertrophy. That is your only job. Your job is signal transduction. Now that we're putting it in technical terms, we have to ask which Inputs on our part get us the outputs that we want. We have a very reliable base of scientific literature to tell us what does work to create those inputs that we want, or the outputs that we want, rather, and what inputs do not create the outputs that we want. One thing that is very clear is that training that is not taken incredibly close to failure, that is not usually repeated with very short time intervals, and that does not create a high metabolite threshold, okay, That kind of training, if it is less than 60% or so of one repetition max, causes significantly less hypertrophy in an advanced individual's probably none than training that is above 60% one repetition max. So a really good idea of what junk volume is, is when you're training so light, but not in metabolite style, that it's really just unclear what you're doing. One of the ways in which people get caught up in this is they say, look, we're in the gym to, to get fatigue. And so long as the exercise is fatiguing, that's good because we want fatigue is the stimulus. Fatigue is not the stimulus. Fatigue is a side effect, right? So if you want big muscles and you're not getting fatigued, you have a problem because that means you're not providing overload. But the way overload is uh, works is the overload provides a stimulus and also provides fatigue. It's not the fatigue that necessarily causes the adaptations. We could very easily prove this correctly. So, so for example, if you want to grow muscle and you say it's all about how the muscle feels, 
not about the weight being lifted, not about the physical stressors. If you feel like it's hard, if the movement is hard, then the muscle is fatigued, then it is really getting all the benefits. Great. I got a really cool experiment for you to try. Make sure to do this without a weight that could crush you. Have it uh, dumbbells out to the side, say something like curls. Take a double dose of muscle relaxers and then two hours later, go to the gym and see how good of a workout you can have. Your 1RM strength will be down like 60% and anything you do, well, it's just completely useless. It's going to feel, you're going to feel more fatigued than you felt in your entire life. You know, five kilo dumbbell curls for a set of 10 is going to feel like the end of the world. Is that going to produce as much hypertrophy as actually lifting 20 or 30 kilos like you usually do when you're fresh? Steve, if the answer is yes, forget insulin, forget growth hormone, forget anabolics. This is your new drug of abuse. I'd be on it all the time, right? I mean, get the same growth. I mean, you can imagine no joint damage, zero joint damage, right? And the same growth, but that's insane. But it doesn't work like that. And it's the only thing that gets your legs huge is shit that's going to crush your joints too. I'm sorry. You're going to have to squat deep with 180 kilos for reps. That's how you get big legs because your legs respond. They literally are mechanoreceptors inside of your muscles that tell you if there's high forces and communicate that to the nucleus of the cell, which then manufactures more muscle protein. It's literally one of the ways in which it works. The is if you're not training sufficiently heavy, at least, then you have a problem. Now, if you there's another pathway for hypertrophy, seemingly the generation of metabolites is likely by itself to cause hypertrophy outside of loading paradigm. So if you're getting the burn, lots of metabolite buildup, lactate, et cetera, that might actually cause hypertrophy independently uh, of loading, which is great. But that requires a special approach to training. It requires you to actually get the burn, right? But there's a way of training that gets neither one of those. So for example, let's say you've done a ton of back work that day and your biceps are already pretty tired. Then you've done a ton of barbell curls and your biceps are super tired. Then you move on to dumbbell curls. You're now so tired that you're doing sets of 10 with what is your 30 rep mat, a 30, um, sorry, 30% of your one rep, so way below 50. And you're not doing them in such a way that just like, you know, failure or beyond someone helps you when you just burn your, you know, I'm talking about when you burn your mm -hmm. biceps off at a workout, you're like, ah, ah, you run around the gym like this because you're <laughs> not going anywhere. You're like, help me, somebody, right? Um, if you're not doing that and you're just kind of getting like good sets of 10, good quality sets of 10, you know, sets of 10 on the bench, you know, it's nothing burning. It's just a good quality set of 10. You get a little mm -hmm. bit of a pump. If you're doing that with those curls, you're just moving weight around when you're tired. You're not accomplishing anything. And, and, and there's, um, you know, that, that idea that if it looks too easy to, to be true, it probably is in training. It goes into that. People say, well, you know, I, I, I train arms later when everything's tired, but that way, you know, I don't have to use as much weight. Well, guess what? There's no way around either burning the shit out of yourself and hurting or using heavy ass weights and risking injury. That's part of the sport. That's a part of being bigger, right? There's no way to either have the weight not hurt you with metabolites or not hurt you with the load. It's gonna suck. If you're training, if you're going in and training was super easy and super fun, you're not growing shit. You may be under the illusion that you're growing something. But that is really the definition of junk volume. And to put it very simply, a succinct scientific uh, kind of uh, wrap up, junk volume is training that is not stimulative to any growth pathway, okay? That's it. Doesn't hit the metabolites, doesn't hit the necessary weight, it's just not stimulus. Now, the problem is every single kind of training, if you're moving around, is fatiguing. 
So it adds fatigue. It reduces your MRV for the week. That's not good. That's bad. There's, a, a, there's another big problem. When you're training, you activate essentially two different pathways in the cell. Uh, one sides of the pathway are the anabolic pathways typified by mTOR and other regulators. Another pathway are catabolic energy producing energy, um, energy liberating pathways that help you continue to train and put the recovery on the back burner. AMP kinase would be uh, kind of typified by AMP kinase and its related pathways. You always activate both of them during training. Now, hopefully you're activating mTOR a bit more than AMPK, thus you get that resultant growth. Junk volume. Weights that are too light and aren't taken to nearly close to failure are no metabolites. Do they generate any response in mTOR? Uh, well, no, they don't because they're just not stimulative, right? We already defined that. Mm-hmm. Do they generate AMPK? Yeah, you bet. Okay, walking generates AMPK. Not a ton, but keep moving your biceps around. And you are literally, after you've given this really big signal to anabolic pathways, right? You've given this huge signal, the first part of your workout, the heavy back stuff, the good barbell curls. Now, as you're doing each set of really light dumbbell curls, AMPK goes up and up and up and up and up. You're eating away your own gains. You legitimately are, which is why uh, people say, you know, um, I love doing a bit of cardio after legs. Uh, you know, I do my leg training, super pumped and super swollen. And then I'll do like a 30 minute incline walking session. My legs are actually less sore the next day. You fucked up. Don't do that. There's plenty of laboratory evidence now that cardio after it waits legitimately shuts down some of those processes that you were starting to get into motion because the body's like, okay, great. I finished training. I'm all fucked up. Time to grow, right? And your legs are like, okay, okay, we got more stuff to do. And they're like, oh, fuck this growth business. We got to take care of moving around. You don't want to do that. So junk volume isn't like, because you know, there's a, there's kind of this view that people are like, well, okay, I could be doing some junk volume, but I got to make sure to get enough training. And, you know, just in case some of the junk volume, that's no big deal. It's icing on the cake it's not icing on the cake it's shit on the cake right maybe that's a <laughs> as extreme analogy <laughs> being shit right but like but it's a net negative it's not a yep. net huge negative unless you do a lot of junk volume this is one of these things where um uh quinn uh, dr quinn Hinock or hennock he told me how to say his name before i totally <laughs> forgot um he points out like with excessive mobility stuff this also tends yeah. to be a problem people will have a great workout then they'll demobilize or whatever for like an hour afterwards and they're pissing away a lot of adaptations. There's, the best thing you can do after you're done working out is go home, eat, watch TV, and relax. That's it. This is the number one hypertrophic formula. If you're doing anything else, active, blah, 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 you're screwing up, right? Period. So that junk volume really is a problem. Send the message. Send a signal for growth. Now, Arthur Jones used to say this about high-intensity training, want to send a signal and nothing else. He was right. Mm-hmm. It's just that his signal was like this, and real MRV is up here, right? So send a signal with as many sets as it takes to hit, you know, close to your somewhere between your minimum effective volume and your maximum recovery volume somewhere in there where you get good growth and, and then go home and stop and then let those muscles rest and recover and then come hit them hard again right anything in between that in that junk volume it's not just that it's not doing anything it's that it's actively taking away from recovery processes and the chemical stimulators of growth that you're supposed to have so mm-hmm. I, I think the, any any questions about that? anything in particular with that i guess a question i'd have is if you're using a weight that's 60% of your kind of above 60% and is there a kind of a way of using that and still producing junk volume? Is it maybe you're not getting as rep as many reps as you should be? Um, is there a way you can kind of clarify that? Um, or have I got that wrong? Cause obviously 60, 60% is like the minimum you want to be using for kind of the mechanical tension, um, and not getting metabolites if you've got three reps with 60%, that's not 
that's that's kind of junk volume is there like a number of reps you'd say that you should be getting or does it depend on fatigue so three reps at 60 percent, an extra three reps added to a program so long as you haven't exceeded your mrv should produce more results it actually can so even just an extra three reps is good so long as it's above that threshold of minimum uh minimum weight Ooh. but there's a trade-off uh, the, you can have more effective training. So one thing we've learned or seemingly start picking up is the following. If you train at failure consistently, you generate so much fatigue that you can't reliably construct a mesocycle like that and you can't build on top of your adaptations and it's not a good way to train. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you train really far away from failure, you're missing out on the likely independent growth effects of failure proximity. Being close to failure, probably something to do with the metabolites that start adding up, but maybe something to do with the damage that occurs. Um, actually, oh, sorry, heard someone outside the door. So um, training really, you know, within close to failure, three, four reps away and closer, does seem to provide some, some growth benefits mm -hmm. that are not volume equated. So even if you got to the same volume, stopping six reps shy of failure, you'll probably grow up a bit more stopping two reps shy of failure, mm. right? You'd grow in that one session the most if you did total failure, but you just can't repeat that kind of effort. Yeah. So if you do just do a couple of reps at 60% or above and stop, if those couple of reps are all you can do because you're that fatigued and that is two reps away from failure, well, holy crap, right? Okay, fine. But if you just do a couple of reps relatively heavy, but you could have done way more, mm -hmm. it's probably better to structure most of your sets a little bit closer to failure than that. Is it a huge difference? No. Which is why a lot of powerlifters who train pretty far away from failure get pretty big muscles. But yeah. probably training a bit closer to failure, three, four reps away from failure, anything like five reps away from failure and below, you could be training harder and making use of that same extra volume better. No, yeah, that really helps clarify it. And I guess, yeah, people need to really focus on their recovery, their performance, kind of uh, soreness and yeah, things like that that are going to help them kind of think about their MRV and stay within that For sure. and build towards it. For sure. So like a quick summary, get in the gym, train hard with heavy weights or metabolites. If you get to a point in your workout where the weights aren't heavy and you're not training from metabolites, just go home <laughs> or restructure your workout. And, and it's one of those situations where um, you can kind of tell when people without a lot of experience writing workouts start writing workouts. They'll, you know, they'll have like barbell bent rows, five sets of 10. You're like, yeah, pull-ups, five sets of 10. Yeah, dumbbell rows, five sets of 10. You're like, yeah, and they're like cable rows, five sets of 15. And you're just like... I feel like, what the hell are you even cable rolling by then? And now here's the deal. If they were like cable rows, drop set, you could be like, cool, metabolites, and then go home. But if it's straight sets of like, let's say it's four by, like I, this is something I've seen at the end. This is comical. The 15 wasn't a super good example. At the end of a workout, it'll be like four by eight cable rows. You're just like, okay, so you're too tired for the eights to be above 60% of your, kettle, of your um, cable row 1RM. It's kind of a strength range almost but you're too weak to train for strength. What the hell is it that you're doing in there? I don't know. Is it going to give you a huge pump and huge metabolite burn? No, man, you're not even going to feel sets of eight on the cable row. So, so why are you doing that? And then you'll point someone out and be like, what the fuck is the point of that at the end of your workout? And they're like, Oh, well, 
I feel like they just never have a good answer. Mm -hmm. So like a finisher is cool at the end of a workout to get metabolites going. So cable row drops that great, but like just another working set after you've done like five exercises already, that's a perfect example of junk volumes. Go home, go home, go home. You're not doing anything anymore. But like some, some, some people like brag about this. They're like, Hey man, I start my workouts lifting like, you know, a hundred kilos in the bench. But by the end for chest, I'm only lifting like 15 kilos in each hand. It's like, is it a drop set? They're like, no, man, it's straight sets. I'm just like, <laughs> what do you think? Does, does, does 15 kilos each hand help anyone else around the gym get big? You know any big guys who use 15 kilo dumbbells? And they're like, no. I'm like, what the hell are you using them for? Well, I figured if I'm tired, no bullshit. If you really think that being tired makes you, you know, better enhanced at lifting, then just get really drunk or take a lot of, you know, uh, what's it called? Uh, <laughs> Uh, for, you know, relaxers relax. and, and, and then just go to the gym. But nobody really thinks that. I guess also this is a good time to bring up the way that you often talked about how you program in that you kind of set the weight and then your fatigue creates your reps to come down through the set. So you kind of know you're using a weight that's going to be above 60% of your kind of warm rep max. So then as fatigue builds, yeah, sure, you might land within kind of that, that six to eight rep range initially, but you might drop off down below and after totally. it, but that's okay because but you're still using effective that load. because it's still heavy weight absolutely and if you get to the point where it's like sets of one or two you're too fatigued to do any more meaningful work and your techniques just breaking down well newsflash you're too fatigued to do anything in the gym that day go home go home uh, you know the, people say like what well, one thing people say especially in powerlifting this is a ridiculous question uh, so, i'm sorry it's being rude it's not a ridiculous question it's a, it's a some people get come to ridiculous implications after answering this question They'll say, okay, so I've lifted my heavy weight for the day. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to get like five sets, mm -hmm. but I'm not like strong enough to get five sets anymore. Okay. Set or sets of sets of five anymore, right? I'm like, let's say I'm using 150 kilos for sets of five. I was supposed to do five sets of five. I got 154, two sets of five, and then a set of four. There's no way I'm going to be able to do it. And I say, okay, what do we do? Like, well, we should drop the weight so we can get sets of five again. Like what's magical about sets of five? Like, well, that's the strength range. Like, no, it's not. You just reduce the weight. <laughs> you know, you don't gain strength by doing a set of five. You know, you don't get super drunk to where you're so weak that you can only lift five kilos and you do that for a set of five and automatically because it's only five reps, it's the strength range. It's the load that determines the strength adaptation. It's the mm -hmm. load that repeat that shit. It's the load that determines the strength adaptations. So then people say, okay, but I can't hit fives anymore, but I'm programmed to. And let's say, you know, we don't have to worry about accumulated fatigue. Let's say it's the last microcycle before a deload. So we got to get this work done. We got to, yeah. it's got to be a superlative effort. We got to get what we got to get. So you get a five by five is 25, correct? So put another way, our goal for that workout is to get 25 total repetitions with hundred kilos. Well, so guess what the answer is? You can't drop the hundred kilos because you're looking for strength adaptations and hundred kilos is what's going to get you there. 80 kilos is no longer in the strength range. Mm -hmm. It's just not going to do to your nervous system the same thing. So what do you do? Well, you drop to sets of three or sets of two and you knock out the rest of the 13 or whatever reps you have left. Does that make sense? So at the mm -hmm. end of the workout, you get a 25 reps at 100 kilos, however it took you to get there. That makes sense? So we mm -hmm. don't sacrifice the load in powerlifting for sure when you're training for strength and in bodybuilding there's a certain point at which we don't sacrifice the load. It's lower, but at some point, if you're too weak to continue to train above 60% one round, and you're just done, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that's it. Nothing, nothing, nothing more to see here. Um, Brilliant. That's that. No, I think that really helps people kind of get that. And because um, you talk about the fatigue building up through the, like your fatigue is kind of masking your performance as you're accumulating through the block. So these kind of lower repetitions than you might expect for a given weight might happen because you're just accumulating so much fatigue throughout that totally. mesocycle as you build up. Volume. Totally. Totally. And, and, I, and if it happens reliably, 
you just got to reevaluate your programming because um, some people, this issue comes up every week. They'll set these crazy goals. They'll not be able to achieve them. And they'll start dropping weight off the bar to get these weird reps that, you know, it's not about the reps. It's about the weight for powerlifting. And so they'll, they'll set these weird goals and just reliably not achieve them. So that little strategy we used when I say you can stop doing sets of five and start doing sets of three or two to make up the volume at that load. That's cool to do. Like I said, maybe right before a deload, if you have to do it in week number two, you fucked up. It's time to rebuild the cycle. Mm -hmm. Cool. No, yeah, definitely. And I think that's important because people might just get tempted to add sets and not worry about then what reps they're getting. And then, well, as the definition it's all down, it's all downhill. <laughs> of MRV is if you can't then repeat that next week and you're having to do even less reps, then your volume's going down and you're not seeing the results you want, which is yeah, absolutely awesome. Right. I think this question is going to be really cool because it's from Trevor Fulbright. Um, who I know recently kind of trialed the physique templates, I believe. I don't know. I don't know anyone by that name. Oh, my lawyer. I'm maybe just not. I'm totally fucking with you. I'm totally oh. fucking with you. I know. Oh, so did I get the name wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to troll him. So this this will be a great question as well. So um, he's asked: Is there any benefit to using accommodating resistance in bodybuilding? So like bands for leg presses. Zed has seen John Meadows use this fairly extensively. Um, is it just variation or is there any potential usefulness or is it actually maybe a detriment? What are your thoughts on that, Mike? Mm -hmm. I think using bands for stuff like leg presses and uh, Smith machine squats, et cetera, um, can be an advantage for variation because it's a novel stimulus and that can itself be a good thing. Um, we know that the muscles grow from novelty alone as long as all the other necessary conditions are minimum met. Um, in addition, that novelty can be, you know, very novel because it's not not typical in any machine or in any free weight for, uh, you know, there be to be a lot of force needed to be expressed at the top end of a range. There are some exercises and some muscles for which that is particularly useful. The triceps probably respond better than a lot of muscles to bands because they, uh, one of the functions of the triceps is to lock out the arm. The triceps technically tend to turn on more and more and more as you get closer and closer to lockout. So if you're using close grip bench presses, and uh, so here's a really cool way to use bands. Let's say you have a big two push days in a week, right? Days where you do chest, shoulders, triceps. One day is a shitload of chest and shoulders. Another day is more tricep and shoulder oriented, not a whole lot of chest. If you smash your chest too hard while training triceps, it's going to screw up your chest training for next week. You're not going to recover as much. You're not going to be able to provide as much of an overload. So there's something to be said for on that chest day, you want a shitload of chest volume and stimulus. On the tricep day, you want much less. So let's say for triceps, you pick one of the best tricep exercises there is, close grip bench presses, right? Well, you know, that's a hell of a chest exercise too. It's going to screw mm -hmm. up your pecs pretty good. Now you have a choice. You can uh, do it like second or third after some isolation work for triceps, in which case the load is limited. The chest isn't as involved. And now the triceps are pre-fatigued and pre-damaged. They become the limiting factor by far, and it's a great exercise. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is, let's say you want the close grip bench, particularly for the heavy tricep loading, because, you know, overhead extension skull crushers, you can only use so much weight. It's a different angle. You want really super heavy loads. You're going to want to use close grip bench press. Well, you can't because your pecs are going to get too screwed up. So what do we do? Ah, we put bands on the close grip bench press, and that lockout part is the hardest part with the triceps, but it's not a big tax on the chest. And at the bottom, it's actually pretty lightweight. The chest never really works all that hard. The triceps work hard. So great use of that. Benefit. That's the benefit. So for some situations in which the muscle group you're talking about 
is maximally stimulated at lockout, those exercises, it's a good idea to use bands for. In some exercises, the lockout is already, or the, um, the top of the force curve is already so difficult compared to any other position that it might not be a good idea to use bands because it just makes the exercise even more difficult and actually reduces how much quality work you're doing. Here's an example, lateral raises with dumbbells. I've seen people put bands in their hands mm -hmm. with dumbbells and try to lateral raise. Fuck, lateral raises are already so hard. This is the hardest possible position for lateral raises right here at 90. You're making that even harder so that the movement ends up just being like, Ugh. <laughs> and they just pull you back down. I mean, you can just use more weight and get the same effect, right? There's no, the force curve is altered to something even less convenient. I would love to see some kind of wacky machine that made the lateral raise easier here so that you could hit the lateral raises harder here at this point. Just think about this one. You use 10 kilos and it's easy as fuck over here, hard as shit over here. There are some fibers, et cetera, in your joint that turn on more down here than they do up here, right? There's definitely a fiber-specific activation relative to height and a bunch of other muscles as well. Mm -hmm. So I would love to see a machine that makes it easier to go up here with dumbbells but makes it harder down here, like a more even distribution. And some machines for shoulders allow you to do that. It's a totally different feel. You get a really cool peak contraction at the top. You get to really slow it down. It's great, and it really allows you to actually get a like stretch the shoulders at the bottom. Wait, yeah. there's no other exercise if it's not a machine that allows you to stretch shoulders at the bottom, and stretch under loads independently related to hypertrophy. So maybe that would be cool. So bands on something like that, ridiculous. You could be backwards. Okay, it's like tying a band to your legs and trying to do pull-ups. Well, the bottom is so much harder that, you know, the bottom of the pull-up is easy. The top part's the hard part. So what does a band do? It makes the top even harder. That doesn't make any damn sense. You know, that, that's really stupid. So that's a bad way to use bands. And in addition, we have to be wary of something else. A lot of muscles, the way they're designed with the exercises that you're using them for, a huge part of the hit that they're getting, a huge part of the overload is stretch under load. The By far the most productive part, in my opinion, of the leg press is the bottom of the leg press where you can literally feel your quads being pulled apart because of how deep you're taking the movement. Your quads are like literally just fraying. I've had people tell me that they don't really feel anything from squats in the quads. I immediately get them heels or get them weightlifting shoes, have them go all the way down with a close stance, point their knees out at the bottom to where they're ripping their quads and they're like, ah, they can't walk. They start getting cramps. <laughs> That's the end of the line for squats don't work. If you use bands on a leg press or on a squat, it can be cool for the variation of having your quads work more at lockout, but you're going to miss some of that benefit of the quads really being taxed to their fullest at the bottom of the motion. So I would say that it's cool to use banded leg presses and stuff like that every now and again, but I think most leg presses, most squats, most bench presses should be the opposite of that. The bottom should be the hardest part. And usually it is just with free weight. Mm -hmm. And the top is supposed to be easier because that bottom part, that super crazy stretch under load, that's what we want. Like I've used a bunch of leg presses in which, and I'm short too, in which I can't go all the way down. It's not even close. A, like a half rep leg press is kind of like a, what a band does. It lets you mm -hmm. really exert yourself at the top end of the motion. I'll do like 10 sets of that and be like, oh, okay, I'm going to be sore whatever. It's really not that bad. I do five sets of super deep leg press. I can't even see anymore after that. So, you know, band stuff does come in handy, especially for when you want the lockout to be more exaggerated. 
but don't just assume that exaggerated lockout is the gold standard. For many mm -hmm. muscles, like the chest, I mean, who the fuck trains chest with exaggerated lockouts, right? If you're doing wide grip bench with bands, you're just not thinking through shit, right? I would say the leg press is maybe 50-50 somewhere there. For squatting, most of the squats power to make you bigger, I think comes at the bottom of the squat. The lock, half squat lockouts, it just doesn't do a whole lot for your quads. When they're not being stretched, they're in a great mechanical position. They don't take a whole lot of damage. Your knees just end up hurting a lot. So, you know, if you had to put bands on, the weight at the bottom might be 150 kilos. It could have been 180 if you didn't put bands on. So you're missing out on 30. So what you're really doing with bands is you're missing 30 kilos at the bottom. You're adding 30 kilos at the top. The claim that you are essentially making as a scientist then is load at the top is better than the bottom. Mm -hmm. That might be true for something like triceps in some positions and some situations. Maybe uh, reverse of true in shoulders and maybe somewhere in between for something like leg presses. So give it some thought. If if the best, it, here's so easy trick, right? All that bullshit intellectual mumbo jumbo will come out with a, with a quick summary. If the purpose of the exercise is a powerful lockout, if the muscle you're targeting, you want to hit it at lockout, bands are great. And they're great to use every now and again. If the muscle is supposed to be hit with a deep stretch, pecs for sure, glutes almost certainly, quads in almost all angles, ha uh, hamstrings, okay? Uh, banded hamstring shit is a total fucking waste of time. I have no yep. idea why the fuck anyone ever does that. Hamstrings, the only way you get sore hamstrings is if you do stuff like it on the good mornings, deep stretch. Otherwise, you forget about it, okay? When you're contracting your hams up the top, that's what the machines are for. So some exercises in which the stretch is important or a big part of it, don't use hamstring or don't use uh, bands. With everything in between, you got to figure, okay, maybe it's even, so we'll use variation sometimes, but it's certainly not a magic tool. Mm-hmm. No, I love that. And I was just thinking of like Romanian deadlifts. If you had a band at lockout, that would just. I've seen people suck. do that. Yeah, that would suck. I don't know what the <laughs> fuck that does. Lockout's not that hard with those. Uh, anyway, um, I've never seen anyone not lock out a fucking Romanian deadlift. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you really want to work a top end range of motion, why don't you do block pulls? Then you're really in for it. But, you know, man, block pulls suck. So people are like, ah, fuck that. I don't <laughs> want to hold that much weight in my hands. I'm just going to go to bands. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. I think we've got time for, well, maybe a couple, but we'll go for sure. Jonathan Mester's question. He's essentially asked that we know of kind of muscle genes in that different people have different genetics for the, how much muscle they can build. And he's asked whether there is kind of obesity genes or like weight gaining genes. Are certain people predisposed genetically to be more obese or to be not more obese, to be overweight and might find it more difficult to lose weight. And I guess this might relate to a bit to like body fat set points and those sort of things. Yeah, without a doubt, yes. Uh, I'd put all my money on it. Uh, well, okay, so the, <laughs> the trick is I, I already know the names of some of those genes, so I can't, uh, I, it's not really a fair bet. <laughs> but uh, um, they have found several individual genes that predispose uh, laboratory animals to weight gain. Uh, they have, uh, there's lots of research going on to find out entire complexes of genes in human. But here's a kind of cool little, uh, little like explanation about the way genetics works with complex variables uh, like body size, body fat, muscle gaining proclivity. There is not one gene for how jacked you are. There is not one gene for how fat you are supposed to be or how easy it is for you to gain fat. There are probably thousands of genes, if not more, that have some small, very complicated contributory, summatory, 
the multiplicative effect on how fat you are. So it's a very complex system. But, uh, you know, just like when you make a pie and you put in some ingredient or one ingredient and not another, it might not change the entire pie, but it does alter the taste, right? Complexity doesn't mean that we can't see an end result when the whole thing is finished. So people say, oh, obesity genetics is too complex for there to be such a thing as obesity actually being influenced by genetics. Hold on a sec. Like if I dump double the salt in pumpkin pie, she's not going to taste like pumpkin pie anymore you're going to taste the salt. Or if you don't taste the salt directly, it's going to mute some of the other tastes. It might not taste as sweet. Shit's going to change. So um, with obesity and muscle gain, there are tons and tons and tons of genes and different individuals have different combinations of those genes. And if you've got, let's say there, are, let's make a simple example. There are 1000 genes for obesity and uh, you know, there's two alleles at each gene, right? So you get the super fat allele or the super skinny allele. Half the population might have like 500 of those genes in the super fat position and uh, 500 in the super skinny. And on average, they're normal people. There are other people that have 900 of those genes in the super skinny variant. And holy shit, they're just always going to weigh 60 kilos. And no matter what they eat, this is not going to do any different. They're not going to ever be fat. Some other people, not a lot, will have 900 of those genes in the super fat position and only 100 in the super skinny. And boy, oh boy, are they going to struggle with weight their entire life. Now, that being said, as you can probably infer statistically, if there's a 50-50 chance for you inheriting either one of the genes, just being a citizen of the earth, a human, any human at random could have any one of those genes, 50%, the chances of someone having 900 of them aligned all in the same and then only 100 aligned differently is really, really, really low. There's a normal distribution about 500-500, right? And then all, all the rest. So... It's really unlikely. So when people say that, oh, you know, um, I'm obese or whatever because of my genetics, you know, the number of people that are super obese, mostly because of their genetics, is very small. So anytime someone says that, you've got to be a bit skeptical, not cynical, skeptical. You've got to mm, maybe, unlikely. So, so when, when you see super obese people and, and, and if they say to you, well, you know, it's all genetics – Almost certainly not, <laughs> because remember, there's other lifestyle variables, et cetera, that come in to cause obesity. But are there people walking around on earth who are doing almost everything as correctly as they can and for whom even maintaining a normal weight is an overarching burden? Yeah, you bet. They're not common. Mm -hmm. Now, more common are people who have to get everything right and put in tons of work to not be fat. Even more common are people who have mostly have to get everything right and can be not, uh, you know, super fat. More common than that are people who pretty much have to watch the basics and they're good to go. More common than that are people who are about 50-50, not serious, any prone to obesity, and they have to kind of work at getting super fat, really fuck up their lifestyle. And then you go back down the scale of people that, you know, can't gain weight at all are incrementally very small. So that actually leaves us with kind of a little lesson, you know, the hard gainer in bodybuilding. Um, that person's real. Those people are real. They're just very rare. And when, you know, your chance of being a true hard gainer is less than 5%. When you tell us you're a hard gainer, we automatically knowing nothing about you. I say there's a 95% chance you're fucking lying, right? <laughs> Simply because 95% of all of the people aren't hard gainers. Now I'm not being a cynic. I'm not being a dick. Well, okay. I'm being a dick, but you shouldn't be a dick. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, you, you, you have to say, okay, yeah, maybe that may be very true. 
then you got to look to the other factors. Okay, oh, but what's your eating like? I'm like, well, you know, I had like a cookie yesterday, which I thought was good. And you're like, okay, you need to shut up right away because I guarantee you it's not just your genetics that's doing this. So is there genetic propensity for obesity and for muscle gain? 100%. Absolutely, yes. Is it just one gene? No way. Is it a huge complex of genes? Yes. Do you have to inherit a really unfortunate mix of that complex to be really, really screwed? Yes. So that's the, the number of people that are so, so, so let me put an exact example for you. Is the American obesity epidemic, I hate calling it epidemic because obesity is not fucking infectious. That's neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> if it is, holy shit, that would change social ostracism altogether. Be like, oh, yeah, I can't hang out with you. You're fat. So, cause I don't want to get there. I don't want to get sick. It's just safety. You understand, right? Um, <laughs> Imagine if like low muscle mass was uh, was uh, genetic. You'd have huge bodybuilders be like, I can't have any skinny friends, bro. It's not good for me. <laughs> but you know, is you know the Western? We'll call it the Western obesity uh, situation because you know Western. You know, UK is not too far behind us. As a matter of fact, sometimes you guys are fatter, depending. On <laughs> so so don't get too cocky there. But because uh, uh, you know Europeans are always called fat pathetic Americans, and then they walk out and they're fat too, yeah. and they're like, ah, oh, shit, we're all fat. But uh, <laughs> so you know the kind of Western obesity situation. Can we say that that's mostly due to genetics when something like 60% of people are obese? Are you kidding me? No way. Now, are there a couple of percent of those people that are obese? Yeah, mostly due to genetics. Yeah, absolutely. Those people usually can trace their family history back a couple generations and everyone's fat. Mm. If, you're, if your parents were fat in the 50s or if your grandparents were fat in the 50s, I don't know, man. That probably looks like genetics to me, <laughs> unless they have really weird lifestyles, right? Because in the 50s, not a lot of people were fat. It was relatively rare to be fat. If you're fat today, boy, oh boy, do we not look at genetics as number yeah. one, right? Now, now, there's a small caveat there again. It, extreme obesity requires genetic propensity. Just like if you're going to squat 400 kilos eventually in your life, you have to be gifted. There's no way to work towards 400K unless you have the tools. Just the same way, if you're going to weigh 400K, which um, there are people that do, by the way, which is a little uh, unsettling, you can't just, you don't just start weighing 50K when you're in the ninth grade, you know, in in elementary school or in in, in high school and and just kind of just really let go. Okay. We've let go, all of us, for a couple of weeks here and there. We gain like a couple kilos. You don't get to 400 400 kilos by gaining a couple kilos a week, you know, Mm -hmm. when you're in ninth grade. Okay, you have to have the tools. You have to have the genetics. So a lot of the individuals that get super obese, almost every single one of them has serious, serious genetic uphill battle. So, so when people like look at these people that weigh 1,200 pounds on TV and they're like, my 600-pound life, that TV show, and they're like, oh, these guys are so pathetic. They may also be pathetic for social reasons, and you may find have a fine opinion holding that, but almost all of them have a huge genetic uphill struggle. So before you say they're really pathetic and they're, they should be just dieting and exercising, understand that for them, a good weight might be 300 pounds. You know, it might be, it might be 150 kilos. It, it may, may not be in the cards for them to be 50K like everybody else. Um, a, lot, a lot of these individuals, when, you know, various documentaries, you know, their past is traced you know, uh, when they were 13 years old, they already weighed like 140 kilos. Holy shit. <laughs> like, I think I weighed a third of that or something. When I was, you know, so, so they're definitely, you know, at the extremes of obesity and the extremes of muscle size. Genetics is number one. So uh, hopefully that kind of beats that one to death for Jonathan. No, yeah, I think that was excellent. I think the fact that you talked about 
for people who are super obese, like to actually get to that point, a lot of people, and even in my own head, I've fathomed how could you possibly get there? Because obviously we've talked about it already. The body's good at homeostasis. It's good at trying to keep it at a certain weight, even if you are pushing towards like an upper limit fat set point kind of to get to that rate you have to be like something not un, not special unfortunately special in that your genetics set you up for that and also Absolutely. i love that you talked about this as well that are uh, mate like for most people and i think if i can relate that to something like uh, gluten intolerance in that not many people are actually gluten intolerant a lot of people think they have a gluten sense well they might have a sensitivity a fair amount but most people don't have kind of celiac disease and it's the same with obesity and blaming genetics it's probably not it's probably something else like well it's not an exact very example and it's a very easy thing to solve uh, as far as causality and determining it do your best follow all the good diet advice really set yourself set yourself up and if you end up becoming a normal weight and it's not hard to keep off turns out it wasn't genetics if you continuously struggle even though you're wholeheartedly doing your best then probably genetics are not on your side hopefully within the next 10 to 15 years depending on regulation um, obesity is going to start to become very very prone to advanced pharmaceutical intervention the body is a machine and it can be engineered and with sufficient knowledge, it can be engineered completely. So, uh, and something actually that Lyle pointed out recently in, uh, in one of his writings for uh, Alan Aragon's literature review, the leptin ghrelin axis seems to be almost entirely responsible for all the metabolic adaptations for low calorie dieting. So if you just have a, uh, a class of pharmaceuticals that either attack the receptor sites for leptin ghrelin axis or mimic leptin ghrelin in some way, um, you can diet for eight months straight and just continue to lose weight and just never get super hungry, never get super tired. Or just like, people are like, how does it feel to have lost like 60 pounds? Do you feel like you're really stalling out? And you're just like, well, I feel exactly like I did when I started. I don't want to eat any more food. And, and, and I think eventually, you know, pharmaceutical uh, approaches like that, really advanced pharmaceutical approaches, um, can solve these problems completely. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's that, you know, people have us, a, uh, a, a lot of people have a bias called the pessimistic bias, which has been documented where they don't think things get better and they forget many ways in which things have gotten better. And they kind of doubt modern medicine, mm -hmm. um, and modern medicine is so powerful and it's so exponentially growing in its power, we can't doubt it. And then some people bring these moralizations to this, uh, this debate where they say, well, that's really stupid if we solve it with pharma, it should be solved you know, with, with, with willpower mm -hmm. and, and stuff. Like, no, I think willpower is great, but why not put your willpower to designing buildings or building colonies on Mars instead of pissing it away and trying not to be fat? Willpower itself is awesome, but there's no golden rule that you have to spend it all, all, all day in controlling your body weight. Imagine how much productivity we can unleash in the human species if we're not worried about our fucking bodies anymore. Pharma's mm -hmm. taking care of that for us. It would be amazing, right? And people say, well, there's no, I can't, I don't even know of anything in which pharma works that great. Bacterial infections. You used to get a bacterial infection, death. Unless they cut it out, you're going to die one way or another. You're just going to get eaten alive. Now, bacterial 
infections are kind of like just a nuisance, right? Mm-hmm. When people say there's antibiotic resistance, there's like 20 different classes of antibiotics. So one of them doesn't work, the other one will. And they're always making up new ones too. Pretty sure nowadays, if you've got bacterial infection, unless you're really well fucked some other way, uh, to use the British expression, <laughs> then you're, you're probably uh, going to be okay. Another class is um, drugs for erectile dysfunction. Um, it, it is literally like one of the position stands of like the American Medical Association. E- erectile dysfunction outside of really severe cases of penile damage or something like that is now 100% treatable or 99% treatable. You can't get hard. There is a pill that will get you the hardest you've ever been in your entire life for so long that you have to go to the hospital to get your shit drained because <laughs> you can't. It's gonna just the tissue is gonna die off or whatever. It's becoming increasingly socially inappropriate. <laughs> so you know, which is arguably a worse problem. But um, you know, so so you know, the it used to be for decades that if you had erectile dysfunction or something that extent. I mean, you have these herbal bullshit remedies. They could say, well, you know, it's really like Freudian, like you're, or you need to work on your relationship with your spouse and all this bullshit. <laughs> and then, and then pharma came along and just, just shat out all that. They were like, just <laughs> Viagra, Cialis, and whatever. I don't even know all the names. Because um, you know what I'm saying? I don't need it. You know, <laughs> had to put in some manhood shit for that. But, you know, these, these drugs are so overwhelmingly powerful that the erectile dysfunction is not a thing anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, it's legitimately like doctors are like, yeah, it's, it's something that like if you want, they've literally said like if you're healthy and ready for sex, you you will have an erection. Promise. <laughs> so it's one of these things where eventually with the obesity epidemic, they're gonna have drugs so powerful and they should and we should welcome them. It's not really gonna be an issue anymore, uh nearly to the extent that it is. And I think that's a great thing. You know, I mean if you fiddle with hunger hormones enough with drugs. Your people, the biggest problem we're going to have in nutrition, outside of performance nutrition, so don't worry, you and I aren't out of a job yet because getting people strong yeah. and fit and lean is still going to be a thing. But as far as obesity clinics and stuff, the big problem is going to be making sure people have enough nutritious foods and vitamin supplements throughout the day because they will legitimately forget to eat. Like we take for granted that this huge desire to eat is something that's innate and completely immutable. Oh, it's hormonally driven. As mm-hmm. soon as you tweak leptin and ghrelin and a couple of other peptides the right way, you legitimately have, you're going to look at food and you're going to be like, I used to remember eating that and it being fun. Um, you would taste it and it doesn't taste that great anymore. And, and, and this desire, you know how you're like, ooh, I want to eat, ooh, ooh, tacos, what's for dinner, pizza, <laughs> that just goes away altogether. And it's a, it's a completely alien idea, uh, but it, 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 you will experience it 100%. And you and I have experienced it mm-hmm. because we've seen those elevations of those hormones or those falls, depending on which hormones we're talking about, uh, when we're at the end of a massing phase. Yeah. People can ask you, like people who have been struggling with obesity their whole life can ask you, okay, you really think pharmacologically we could just end obesity? Like, yeah. Be like, well, that, that's nonsense. I'm always going to want to eat. That's bullshit. You have end a mass phase and someone's like, what do you want to eat? And you're like, nothing. I don't want to eat anything. I don't want food. Food looks gross. I hate it. You watch a Taco Bell commercial on tv and you're like oh god oh my god how can they eat that stuff like you know like you've ever been like um at the super top of a mass and you've eaten the big meal and you're watching uh telly and you know there's like a hamburger commercial and you're just like yeah mm. and they're like cheese is dripping off and you're like oh god yeah turn that off like no, no 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 right but after a cut on a bodybuilding show i mean that cheese looks like you could legitimately just rub your whole body in it and you would never need friends again cheese is going to be your only friend and that's totally fine so and that's all mediated almost exclusively by various, you know, gut hormones and body hormones mm-hmm. that are responsible. If we can, if we can, you know, alter them with pharma, 
man, that's really almost case closed down the line. And just do genetic engineering. You just don't have to have those genes in the first place. They mm-hmm. give you a virus and remove them altogether. But until then, I think advanced farming is the way to go. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I've definitely experienced it personally. Kind of things don't taste as good when you're bulking and massing. And the longer you do it, the less you care about food. And a classic example for me, and I don't know if you've had it yourself, is Walden Farms. Kind of when I'm cutting, <laughs> Walden Farms is the shit. Whereas when I'm massing, I'm like, don't touch that stuff. <laughs> there are a variety of foods that like, it's like a test, you know, like um, if a private investigator, like, okay, so let's say we like, we have a crime, right? And uh, there's like suspects. And we know from other parts of the investigation that the person who committed this crime was a contest dieted bodybuilder, <laughs> right? And they get like 10 people together and they're like, which one of you is dieting for a show? And they're all like super lean and jacked. They're like, no, I'm, I'm always like this big. I'm massive. I haven't been dieting a long time. I didn't do the crime. And they like pass around a bunch of foods. And some of those foods, if you still like them, you fucking did it. You're the contest <laughs> dieting bodybuilder. Like Walden Farms. Like if you got a guy be like, oh my God, Walden Farms, he starts eating like the ranch dressing. You're like, that guy fucking did it. There's your killer right there. It's like, no, no, no. I always like it. Like nobody always likes Walden Farms, you liar. Tell that to There's, there's that occurs in there. Sorry, I just lost you at that tiny last bit, which I am frustrated because I think it was going to be quite funny. I can repeat it if you'd like. I lost you as well. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. I, the uh, Can you still hear me? Yeah, yeah. If, you know, depending on the hormonal status of the body based on where you're dieting, there are definitely a bunch of foods that legitimately only contest bodybuilders eat. Um, I mean, think about it. Like, um, do you guys have, uh, what is that? Um, Arctic Zero ice cream in the Don't, UK. I got kind of gutted, but <laughs> should Don't I not? Don't gutted. It sucks. Arctic Zero is something you can only enjoy maybe like the day before a show. Like you have to be that far <laughs> into the diet. It barely tastes. It tastes like like somebody dropped like a, a diet coke into a huge puddle, and the puddle froze. Like it's a huge <laughs> puddle, just this much diet coke, and it froze. And then they took all that ice and mixed it, and there's your ice cream. And you're just like. <laughs> I mean, I think there's kind of flavor in here. Yeah, it's exactly. It's like, it's not that great, but you know, um, and then, and then, you know, you're deep into a mass when someone's like, what about like this, your favorite delicious food? And you're just like, I'm okay. And then, you know, like, and then at that point, Walden farms and stuff is just not negotiable. You think it tastes like poison as far as you're concerned. So. No, I think that's great. And it's, I think it's, it's interesting talking about it's kind of like the naturalistic fallacy in terms of people being a bit scared of these new things that are kind of being introduced and like you said kind of we've kind of advanced as a human race and we're healthier and living longer as ever because of all these great like pharmacological tools and for me personally actually thinking about kind of helping people lose weight through using it kind of initially doesn't sit well but when you explain it and you think about it it makes complete sense and for me personally from having a head injury that impacted my hormones, my testosterone came down and I had to be on TRT for a short period of time. And that literally changed my life. It was life changing. It completely changed my emotions. It completely kind of upregulated testosterone and brought all the amazing things that kind of normal levels of testosterone bring. And Mm -hmm. for me, if I didn't have that, I don't know where I would be right now. I don't know if my normal levels would have recovered without having that because they have now. And yeah, that changed my life. And so I think advances are going to change other people's lives and i think they're only really a positive thing um and yeah it's funny you introduced the genetic kind of change in genetics because i think i recently heard that they can do that with kind of they're going to think about maybe we're not going to need steroids anymore because we can 
manipulate kind of your genetic um, DNA. And so you actually can just do that and then you pass all the drug tests. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, that's one hell of a, that is one hell of a consideration. Um, it, it really does bring up interesting, uh, uh, it brings up some interesting, uh, I said ethical questions or questions of what mm. we want sport to be. Um, you know, cause people say, you know, I want the human body to do like, I want to see the best human performance naturally. Well, you, you're yeah. not, you're not already seeing that. Um, most of the people that are in the Olympics should have been dead before age five because they didn't get proper medicine as children. And that's what happened naturally. So you're already seeing people that have never survived past age five. And, um, you're seeing people that have spent most of their lives engineering their nutrition, engineering their training in very artificial ways. I didn't see super training just lying around in the savannah, you know, 500,000 years ago. Uh, you know, I didn't see any books, any articles. That is all very artificial. So when people say, you know, I don't want the Olympics to be tainted with, uh, you know, artificial things, I want natural, and they single out drugs, it is not um, philosophically consistent, uh, ideologically consistent to single out drugs. Um, any more than it is periodized nutritional intake or anything like that. Mm -hmm. One thing that I can understand as a logical problem uh, is that uh, safety, right? You don't want people yeah. to be risking their safety to achieve high levels of sport performance. But uh, man, it's, boy, is it hard to keep people from doing that no matter what kind of rules you make. Yeah. Um, so that's another one of those things where it, it's, I think it's probably going to need to be more self-regulating. Like, look, if you want to die trying to win, fucking idiot fuck you and yeah. if you do it and still win great um congratulations enjoy your life but um it, it becomes a really difficult problem when you talk about the things that are on the horizon you know so let's say that they can manipulate genetics well it's going to get to the point where even that's doesn't really keep you away from testing because sooner or later you're going to start to look so ridiculous <laughs> that it's going to be obvious you're doing it like if you got someone and they're coming in with hamstrings double the size of what used to be a normal sprinters and they say, no, but I'm not on the new genetic doping and everyone else who got popped has the same big hamstrings. And you're like, no, I was born like this. Well, you're the only person born like this in the last, you know, ever the history of the human race. And even if we can't trace your genes, I mean, obviously that's bullshit. Another thing is if we alter genetics uh, in such a way that we just give people gene variants that other people already have. Uh, yeah. It could be not traceable. They could, uh, here's, here's a really easy way around that. Um, they can just get mom and dad's blood uh, and, and see if they have the genes. And if they don't, obviously you got them from a test tube. So they, they just leads to this crazy race of doping control, which is great if, if the underlying premise that it's worth it is good. Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure it's, you know, like don't people watch sports to be entertained? Yeah. Like, and, and the question is like, you know, well, I watch the Olympics to see what the human body can do. Who, who gives a shit? Um, why don't we see what the human body can do with every single modification ever? Why don't we build an actual super saiyan and see if he could blow up planets and shit like that? That's a lot cooler to me. Like humans are pathetic. They're weak. You know, mo animals can beat humans in every single event of the Olympics, you know, minus a couple of weird ones. Like, you know, I think marathon humans probably still win, but like, um, you know, I, I don't know. It's just this idea of, uh, of, I want to see what humans, just humans can do. It's already a myth. It's not itself super impressive. It, you know, if, if you want to be entertained by humans in sport, then just be entertained. And, and, a, and maybe there's some good oversight to keep them safe. Um, and then again, I'm not so sure that safety is a big deal. They're all adults. 
and there's lots of money to be made. And if you want to risk it to make a lot of money, fucking fuck off. You know, like a like if a, if a, an NBA basketball player wants to get surgery to elongate his height, um, and he's willing to risk his life for it for you know fifty million dollar contract. Is it crazy to risk your life in a surgery? Sure. Is it crazy for fifty million? Not really. <laughs> May actually make sense. Uh, so uh, part of that is just like it. It gets off into this world of you know. It ends up being that sports are just you know, so long as the customer wants to see incrementally crazier performances, there is going to be a way to beat drug tests and beat every single kind of test there is, and cheating will always be a part of it. Um, if they want to pay for this huge ultrastructure of doping control for some semblance of control, fine. Uh, not everyone's into that. I don't know. I always, uh, I had an idea in graduate school which got me into a lot of shit, or people just thought I was a really stupid person for this. Um, it was actually a debate we had in our seminar class in my master's program. Uh, I proposed that there be two categories of the Olympics every four years drug tested and untested mm. um the the drug tested olympics the penalty for using drugs in it would be permanent ban from sport uh and complete ostracism possibly deportation from your nation something really extreme so if they catch it because you know right now like something ridiculous like if you get caught with drugs in various like usapl or ipf you get caught with drugs, it's like a six-month ban or like a year. You get a warning. Mm -hmm. Fucking warning. You're fucking cheating. Like, get the fuck out of here, right? But here, well, there's not really a problem because, let's say, some drug tests are just false positives, right? And, you know, or, you know, you took some supplement you didn't know what it had in it. Great. No worries. Uh, you can never compete in drug-free again, but there's an Olympics every four years if you want to use drugs. So now you're with your friends that use, <laughs> right? Some of, the, some of the lowest drug use rates in the United States in sport are in powerlifting federations, which have a natural arm and a not natural yeah. arm. Nobody uses drugs in the natural arm because that's insane. Like, why not just, and your friends at the gym will just browbeat you. Like, can you imagine training for a natural bodybuilding show and like using gear while other people are training for like just, just like UK open nationals, like the mm -hmm. IFBB arm? And, and, and then like, they're like, what show are you doing? You're like, yeah, man, the, uh, you know, East London naturals. And they're like, you fucking nuts, you pussy. What the hell is wrong with you? Like, so current today, most natural bodybuilders really are drug-free. Use mm. is really rare because when they want to use, they just go to the NPC or something, you know, more competitive that has drugs. In the Olympics, there is no such option. So everyone uses because that is the same thing. Yeah. So I think if you get the drug tested and untested, man, you can at least really be pissed when the guys in the drug tested use drugs. And I'll tell you this, very few things piss me off as much as, and I know some of these people in person, unfortunately, uh, or have known them, natural bodybuilders that use drugs for natural bodybuilding shows. I mean, what kind of pathetic fuckstick mm. do you have to be? Unbelievable. Hey, big man, you want to use drugs? There's the IFBB for your bitch ass or the NPC or whatever. Oh, but those guys are huge. Well, guess what? You're just like them now. Go over there. And they're not cheating. People who compete with drugs are great people. They just decided mm -hmm. to use drugs. Yeah. When, you, when you cheat in natural body, it was just insane. And, and like, there's guys cheating. And every now and again, you'll see guys in like natural powerlifting, like drug tested powerlifting cheat. And it's just like, so let me get this straight. You're cheating to win a trophy you could have simply bought at home yeah. online. Exactly. And you, you, you get no money um, because you actually pay money to compete. So you're paying yeah. money to cheat to win nothing. You're the man. <laughs> insane. Totally insane. Yeah, I anyway, completely that's my rant agree. on that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I completely agree in that. I think 
I think the pressures for people in the Olympics are so crazy high and people don't realise the pressures they're under and that if people are taking, everyone's going to take because they need... Like, and I think having a separate division for drug-free and tested... Uh, or tested and drugged, I think is an excellent idea. And then, yeah, I, I bet there's going to be some natural people that are going to try and go into the, the, the tested one or claim natural. I don't know. You'll sure. get things like that. Uh, and I think we got a bit they, of an they, insight they, they into will. the future. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. <laughs> we know if Mike's in charge of it, we know what we're going to see. We're going to see some like oh boy. DNA from giraffes put into basketball players. <laughs> Robot Olympics. Yeah. Steve, Robot Olympics. Oh my I gosh. Mean, I'm not interested in <laughs> biological organisms. Robot Cyber Olympics. It's just gonna, We're going to have to do them on the moon because part of the moon is going to get blown off every year because there's going to be like the nuclear cannon shoot off. There's going to be, you know, jump to hyperspace is going to be an event. It's going to be amazing. At least make a film, Mike. Direct a film. I want to see this. <laughs> I think people pay for it's going to be a super awesome hipster indie film, like the first year of the Robot Olympics, and it's going to show how the organization's not that great. But it's really, Steve, it's all about the characters, and it's going to show how these <laughs> robots, despite all odds, despite no one caring about the Robot Olympics yet, it's their passion to win that took them this far. And damn it, we owe them anything. <laughs> I'm going to get all these awards. I'm going to go to the Sundance Film Festival. I'm going to talk about global events and shit like that, and all these dinners and charity. It's going to be amazing. I'm finally going to be a star. <laughs> Uh, you better voice the main character at least that's that's what i want well you know it's a documentary this has to be natural voices the robots will speak for themselves don't try to speak for the robots Steve. you're just a roboticist and you have no idea what's going on i'm going to show you right with this film the robot olympics <laughs> the underdogs of the machine world coming to theaters in 2065 be there it'll be great um i'm donating all proceeds to charity uh called renaissance periodization um <laughs> It's going to be awesome. Awesome. Well, I think we cut it there because I think we've taken enough of your time and uh, we'll let you get on with your Christmas festivities. Hopefully you've, you've got some exciting stuff planned. I've already got green on. I just need to wear some red and I'm good to go. And I'm Christmas color. Christmas tree <laughs> or elf. I think maybe more of a tree yeah. size. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, I just want to yeah, give my personal thanks to you, Mike, now um, in terms of just people that are loving the podcast and I've had so much praise and particularly for the podcasts done with yourself. And I know I probably wouldn't have had the confidence to keep bringing on other guests and interview other people and just continue to bring you on without you taking the time to have done this. And yeah, just a personal thanks from me. And I know all the audience want to give you a thanks. We've had a ton of great view of reviews as well. And uh, yeah, just, hopefully we can continue this into the new year and yeah keep helping people answering their questions providing entertainment science and all of that good stuff so thank you well steve thank you so much for having me and it's a pleasure and uh i think you're a great host and uh let's look forward to more in 20 whatever fucking future 2017 and shit robots shooting each other yeah. sounds like it sounds like you know i've made it too far you know like 2017 <laughs> is supposed to be like the cyber battles now which i'm going to make with my robot movie but that's neither here nor there um so yeah man thanks so much for having me and i look forward to 2017 and uh, continuing on uh with more more q a so we'll bring it up awesome yeah the next product project right. isn't more templates it's the film so you better put all resources to that now. <laughs> nick tell nick shaw to go to hell let money grow me <laughs> asshole we're only making robot films i'm done being a sports <laughs> scientist robot films only brilliant so thanks guys take care and we'll talk to you soon